Acting funny, but I don't know why. Excuse me while I rank these songs. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Ranking the Beatles, if you couldn't tell. I'm just going to have to let this happen, aren't I? This is my new thing. Oh, great. <laughs> I've decided it's how I'm starting every show from here on out with a complete dad joke. Well, now I'm going to have to start coming up with ideas for you and make them be the worst. I would like you to join in and do some of these. I, I did a little bow, bow, But like, bow, I want you to bow. take the lead and you no, have your own. No one wants me to sing. I do. Literally no one else wants me to sing. Our subscribers <laughs> want you to sing. <laughs> no one. They probably don't. They, they, they don't, don't even want me to sing. They don't know how bad I sing. They're here to hear me talk about the Beatles. Friends, I am not the musician in the family. <laughs> so well. um, even the dogs sometimes look at me like, when I sing bad songs about them, just like my goofy songs, they're like, please, please stop. Please stop. <laughs> well, when we put out the record by our husband and wife band, Wangs, we'll see what the public think about that. I'm just going to be in the back playing keys. Yeah, dude. That's be, all. That's all I need. Cool. I don't need to sing. I love it. Well, <laughs> anyhow, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, hope you're all doing well this week. We've got a doozy of a show for you. If this is your first time, what we are doing here is I have ranked 223 songs by the Fab Four um, and going through them. This is my own personal order. This is not uh, what I think is uh, this is my own personal ranking. This is not authorized by Apple Corps or any official Beatles representative. It's not even authorized by me. <laughs> this is true. Um, it's just what I think. But we use this as an excuse to talk to a whole bunch of friends and musicians and creative people to see what they think about it, too, and get their stories. Uh, if you're just catching up, our rankings up till now are 223, then Come Give Me Dein Hand. One day I'm going to get that pronunciation right. Uh, oh. Mr. Moonlight, P.S. I Love You, Love You Too, Hold Me Tight, You Like Me Too Much, if you've got trouble, how do you do it? That means a lot. And tell me what you see, which brings us to today, uh, coming in with number 212. And we're going to knock out 211 as well with our good friend, Mr. Paul Sanchez. Uh, Paul cut his teeth in the early 80s New Orleans new wave scene uh, and then in Greenwich Village writing folk songs. In the early 90s, he co-founded the rock band Cowboy Mouth, in which he was a singer, songwriter, and guitarist. The band hit the charts in the late 90s with songs like Jenny Says, Light It On Fire, and How Do You Tell Someone, while at the same time, Paul kept up a steady output of solo albums. In 2007, Paul left the band to concentrate on his solo work, and because the world is a strange place, I was the musician that taked... Uh, uh, and because the world is a strange place, I was the musician that ended up joining the band to assume his role as rhythm guitar player for the next three years. Funny enough, I'd never actually met Paul um, until I left the band myself in 2010. And I met him the first night I was back in town from a tour, from the last tour we did. Uh, we walked into the mother-in-law lounge and who was right there inside the door? But Paul Sanchez. That was such a great moment. Yeah. You all just sort of like gave each other a nod like, like I see you. Hey there, mate. Mm, yes. And uh, yeah, we exchanged some war stories and uh, became fast buddies ever since then. Um, 
Uh, and so, so since he's left the band, though, uh, since then he's done, uh, since leaving the band, he has done a whole lot of stuff. Uh, he's written a musical based on the New York Times bestseller, Nine Lives. It's so amazing. We yeah. saw it, um, oh, where, it was at the CAC performed yes. live, and it yeah. was incredible. Yep. Uh, he's been awarded Songwriter of the Year by Offbeat Magazine five times. Uh, he's appeared as himself on the HBO show Treme. He's written songs for Darius Rucker, uh, the Eli Young Band, Irma Thomas, and Tim Summer of the Brooklyn Observer has called him America's greatest living folk singer. That is no small claim. No. And uh, I Tim think it's Summer. Valid and accurate, though. Tim Summer, if you Google Tim Summer and see his history, the dude has been around and seen some stuff, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, his most recent solo album, also his 19th solo album. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is I'm a Song, I'm a Story, I'm a Ghost. It's available at paulsanchez.com, or you can get it on vinyl at louisianamusicfactory.com. And you can also listen to the rest of his music anywhere else you stream or buy music. Everybody, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Paul Sanchez. Yes. And the crowd goes mild. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, man? You've been taking notes from a drummer on that one. I oh. <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, I'm. I'm. I'm I think, like everybody else, I'm, I've tried to be a good so- soldier, but you know, six months in, I'm, I'm mentally exhausted. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I, part of my therapy in the last couple of years, and, and having lost my voice through some surgeries and stuff, I took this thing called the Alexander technique, mm-hmm. and and part and a lot of it is mindfulness and posture in everything that you do. Mm-hmm. So I came back for the second week of, of sessions, you know, I was going every week and he goes, so how, how are you? And I, his, my, my guy's name is Al uh, Walsh. And I said, Al, mindfulness is exhausting. <laughs> it very much is. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, like trying to be mindful of that piece amidst the chaos that the world is right now. Mm-hmm. It can be a bit exhausting. Yeah. To say the least. But um, the, the fun thing is that, you know, we're finding, New things to keep us occupied. I know you said you've been gardening. We've been podcasting. Mm-hmm. Like you've you know. been gardening a little too. A little you bit. A little... I'm trying not to kill things. Right, just trying to keep <laughs> some plants alive. Well, we figured this is not going anywhere anytime soon, um, so we should probably try to beautify our backyard space so we can at least have some socially distant. Well, I haven't been on Facebook much in the last couple of weeks. In fact, I took a retreat from Facebook. And Wise man. Started listening to Ram Dass lectures instead. Oh, nice. Uh, but I did, before I got off Facebook, I saw some of your backyard improvements, including your cinder block. Uh, oh, yeah. Thank you. Thing you were working on. A little planter. It's so yeah. cute. <laughs> and it's a really sweet idea. He, like, put out a call on Facebook to, like, our friends, like, hey, do you guys have any plant cuttings? So now we have, like, all these little plants from all of our friends. So we can, like, look at the plants and be like, oh, that was from so-and-so. I miss them. Let's have them over. Yeah. <laughs> I could definitely give you something. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk afterwards. Well, Paul, please. Yeah. Let's go ahead and jump back a little bit. You know, tell me a bit about how you first discovered the Beatles. How did you get into the Beatles as a as a young boy? I have uh, five older sisters and four older brothers, one younger brother. At the American release with the Beatles, mm-hmm. and each of the Beatles' faces on the cover had lipstick print on it. <laughs> I just, you know, stayed with me my whole life. I, I stole the album and I had it until Katrina. Um, and it, it still had the lip print, lip print. You know, they had faded some, but they were still there. 
And then I remember like my first memory of wanting to play music was when McCartney played yesterday on the Ed Sullivan show. I was, mm-hmm. you know, five years old and uh, there was this guy up there with an acoustic guitar singing and everybody was paying attention and I wanted to be that guy. Yeah. And uh, and then their music was, was I think their, their music was brilliant. I think that they were brilliant songwriters, but their myth was what attracted me to them as much as their music. They, The myth of four really poor kids from a port town like New Orleans. Mm-hmm. A couple of them had lost their, their mother, you know, and so I had lost my father and I was from this poor town. I was really poor neighborhood and it was mostly Irish, which Liverpool's a lot of Irish. So there was a lot of uh, symmetry there that drew me to them and drew me to their myth. And it was the rags to riches story to end all rags to riches stories. Yeah. They were the kids' dreams of being bigger than Elvis and were four times bigger than Elvis. I think it's interesting to find those kind of connections in the stories of of artists that you kind of grow grow up, you know, not idol, I guess idolizing, but it, I think it, it, it kind of, it strengthens that tie that you have to that artist when you can kind of find a similar storyline. Um, well, you know, as uh, my friend Tim Summer, who's a great music journalist who writes for the uh, uh, Brooklyn Observer, and you should check him out because it'll blow your mind. I'll send him, some, I'll send you some of his stuff. Awesome. He's brilliant. But he put it a long time ago that being a fan of a band isn't just being a fan of a band. It's being a member of a club that says, I'm like this or you like me. Mm-hmm. And wear their t-shirts and their hats and they, we have their coffee mugs and their bumper stickers and we have the thing that says this is who I am yeah. you know, this identifies me so I think that that was part of a big part of what you know the Beatles had going on as well as, and that's why it's still you're attached and I'm attached is because when we talk about it we know that there's a 20 year age difference between us but we're members of the same fan club right yeah, yeah. what um what do you think musically? What was kind of the first? I guess the, the what what grabbed you first? You know, because when you saw them when they came on Ed Sullivan, but how old were you at the time? See, I was born in '59, so I guess I was six in '65. Okay, so so you really kind of concurrently came, you know, came of age and became a musician. Uh, I guess really probably after they broke up was when you probably got really into it, but. But I would, yeah, well, I was playing by the time I was a sophomore in high school, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I started playing in my freshman year and I had my first gig my sophomore year. Okay. And, and the people said it was at the Fat City Bar, Fat City Gateway Lounge in, on Causeway, just off the uh, interstate. Mm-hmm. And it was my next door neighbor's mom. She was a bartender there and it was her birthday and they needed somebody to play. And I was 15 years old. And I went, and they wanted only country songs. And what I knew mostly was Beatles songs, so I sang them with a country accent. <laughs> That's awesome. Did it go over well? They loved it. They loved it, man. I, I made five whole dollars for the three hours. This was the life for me. <laughs> I love it. How? Um, and this is kind of a broad question. In in what ways can you think of kind of immediately that? the Beatles or Beatle music has impacted your life? And I know that's a tough question as a professional musician who grew up idolizing the Beatles, but like, you know, if you look to like specific things, if you could think of that. There's so many ways that they have, you know, as a songwriter. Um, I, and I've heard you talk about 
And you're really great about talking about how the records were made. You know, you have like an encyclopedic knowledge of the production of the records, of each record. It's really fun and fascinating to talk to you about that. Thanks. But for me, one of the most interesting things and how they impacted me was they, they both took me out of my literal working class neighborhood and literal working class way of looking at the world and brought me into a psychedelic loving and love way of looking at the world and then brought me back to looking at it as domesticity. One of Lenin's last challenges in 1980 before he was killed was he said, the, the interviewer of the Playboy interview said, what do you think of Bruce Springsteen? It was 1980 and the river had just come out and he was kind of a big deal. And Lenin said, well, I don't know what to think of him so far. He's written songs about driving cars and chasing girls and that's great. But what's he going to do when he gets married and has a kid or two? And how's he going to write about being a husband and a father and make it rock and roll. If he can do that, I'll let you know what I think of him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that question impacted on Springsteen's music, though he did go from writing about cars to writing about being a father and a husband. But it certainly did to me. Mm -hmm. I certainly, as, I, as a songwriter, which was most important to me throughout my career with both Cowboy Mouth and as a solo artist, I've always considered myself a songwriter. And my best gift was that I wanted to be as honest as possible. I wanted to write about my marriage, my failings, my other marriage, my other, <laughs> and, uh, and, and trying to, and trying to be a man amidst all this madness. And I, so they impacted me from the start of what I thought songwriting should be to this very day, what I think songwriting should be. Yeah. That's great. That's excellent. Um, Cool. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and, and dive in if you are, are ready for that. That's awesome with me. Coming in at number 212 is Love Me Do. a quick history about Love Me Do. This is the lad's first single. It was composed all the way back in 1958-1959 uh, by Paul and John back when they were still writing songs in their school notebook with the header of another Lennon-McCartney original on the top. Uh, the band recorded the song three times, first with Pete Best during their audition for EMI in June of 62. Uh, his playing on the track is actually ultimately one of the reasons why both the band and George Martin decided that they were going to need somebody else behind the drum kit. It's not the most solid drumming in the world, and it's kind of the uh, the signpost that maybe they need somebody a little bit more solid back there behind the kit. Um, they tackled it again September 4th of 62 with their new drummer, Ringo Starr, behind the kit, only two weeks into the band. Uh, however, George Martin remains unconvinced of the recording, so on September 11th, they record it again for the third time, only this time they've got session drummer Andy White behind the kit. Uh, at George Martin and engineer Ron Richards' request, Ringo is delegated to tambourine duty, unfortunately. Now, originally, George Martin and Ron Richards were pushing for the song How Do You Do It to be the band's debut single, with the caveat that if they could write something as good as that, they could release it. The band pushed for Love Me Do, 
and the results on record between the two songs show they're a lot more engaged on their own song. I'm sure that's not by chance. Um, eventually, you know, Cooler Heads prevail. They release Love Me Do as their first single. Smarter Heads, not quite Cooler Heads. Um, the song goes on to be a hit in England, peaking at number 17 in the charts. Uh, rumors that the sales are bolstered by a large order of 10,000 copies from manager Brian Epstein's NEMS record store uh, is unproven, but hey, if so, fair play to the manager who believes in his artist enough to put his money where his mouth is. So kind of the reason why I've got this at number 212, you know, Love Me Do just never really kind of sunk into me as a Beatles song that I love. I think I more love the idea of Love Me Do than the song. I love the idea of them really betting on themselves and pushing Parlophone and George Martin to kind of let them be their own self-contained unit, release their own songs, and really establish that as that bar. Um, I think one of the strongest things about the song is really in the performance that they sound completely engaged and excited and young, and there's a nervous energy to it that I think is a palpable thing that gives it a really good feeling. Um, and it gives it a lot of charm. You know, Paul always talks about how he can hear his voice is nervous on the chorus. And I think there's a charm to that that is really kind of nice. Um, um, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. But when I talk about the Beatles with younger people and, and more so today, you know, people mm -hmm. that are fans of, you know, when Kanye West was still making music and not running for president, <laughs> you know. I was talking to a young fan of his and he was like, well, Kanye, you can't even compare the Beatles. And I was like, no, you can't because they invented the things that he now does and claims as his own, mm -hmm. which every young artist does, but they truly did. Yeah. You know, and love me do. You have to understand they were inspired by the, by Holly and the crickets. That's why I chose the name of the Beatles. They wanted to write their own songs. Right. They had written a song when they were just teenagers. So admittedly, even by then it wasn't, the greatest song ever, but but it had an, an intent. They always wanted to have the words "me" or "you" in a song, mm -hmm. and then love because they wanted it to be a personal relationship between them and the fans. They knew who they were reaching early on. Um, also, even though they themselves overused the instrument, it was the first time that the harmonica appeared as a main, a lead instrument on a major pop record or a pop record. Mm -hmm. So they were breaking ground, even on their first record and even with a song they had written as teenagers. And they're kind of picking that off of, um, off of Hey Baby by Bruce Channel. Cause well, I think yeah. that had come out from what I was reading that came out in March of that year. Right. And so they had, they, so they'd been playing the song for a while and then, and then he, they, they did some shows with Bruce Channel in June of 62 and so they were around it. It was a, yeah. it was a thing. And Lennon actually kind of picked off some, you know, had a conversation with Delbert McClinton who was playing harmonica on that tour and kind of, you know, how, how are you doing that riff? You know, how do you do that? And, uh, you know, I, I think if you listen to the version on anthology, when Pete Best is still in the band versus the versions with Ringo, John's playing is way more confident come September of that year. Cause he's gotten those pointers off of Delbert McClinton. And like that lick sounds way more like, Hey baby at that point.
and I, I liked what they were doing with the harmonica in the early stuff, but I think they were smart to realize quickly on that, like, it was kind of becoming a gimmick, and then they just chucked it out after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how they were, though. You know, they were always looking for the next new thing. The harmonica to the sitar to the, you know, four-string quartet to an eight-string octet. You know, it's always growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to review how you were introducing the song, because you were uh, in a band, and we've all... I'm sure a lot of your listeners were in bands or like Brett Milano, the music writer, watched young bands develop. So imagine that moment. You know, you've gotten the audition with the big record company up in London and you go and then your manager comes back and they go, well, they don't like Pete. Now, they don't say you have to replace Pete. They just want to use somebody else. Say you can use him on the tour, but you're just a kid Mm -hmm. and anything to make it. So the drummer's out. Right. <laughs> yeah. As far as McCartney goes, he was too handsome anyway. Right. And they get Ringo, who they've been playing with on gigs and who swings, and he's kind of more them. So they're happy, you know. And they take the licks with the home fans, and they go to the studio going, like, all proud. They're, and they're still just freaking kids. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, we got a new drummer because you didn't like the old guy. And he goes, Well, that's all well and good, but I, but I booked the drummer. Now imagine you're George Martin. And you're 30 years old and 31 and you're just giving these kids a chance you know you're paying them literally a half a penny a record you're not doing them any giant favor but you're letting them record and you go no I booked a drummer because you say he said that a thousand times yeah. he doesn't mean to crush Ringo he doesn't you know know that that's what he's just done to the band and to Ringo so then there's poor Ringo who thinks he's off to the big time and now he's <laughs> off the corner with a pair of maracas thinking they're going to sack him when they get back to Liverpool. Yep. You know, because they had a U.S. studio drummer. But George Martin later says that Ringo looked so incredibly sad that he gave him a shot on the drums and he liked it and he wound up using it on the album version. Mm-hmm. So, uh, to me, it's a real human moment and a real beautiful story of how desperately they wanted to be the Beatles. As Lennon himself once said, one had to completely humiliate oneself to be a Beatle. Yeah. I, I always found a lot of weight in the line of, you know, in order to make it, you've got to be a bastard. And the Beatles are the biggest bastards of them all. That's another Lennon one, which. Yeah, he said that, but that, you know, that wasn't true. I mean, it, they were the, they were the, they were the biggest victims as well. Yeah. You know I mean, they, I mean, they knew how to put, uh, I would say they know how to pl- they knew how to play the game, but it's almost like they kind of invented the game or they played the game as it was created. They, did, they 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 sort of made it up as they went along. The business side of it for them was a disaster because their manager, beautiful guy who loved them dearly and they wouldn't have been the Beatles without him, but he was an appliance salesman from Liverpool. Mm-hmm. So when he goes to Parlophone and makes the record, he makes them one of the worst deals in the history of the record business. A half penny a song for every song they put on the record. Mm-hmm. And then they go to the publisher. And the publisher takes the lion's share, giving them 40% of their own publishing, which being good guys, they give four and a half each to Ringo and George, which means they own like 20 and a half percent of their own songs. Right? So they go through everything until Sgt. Pepper, not owning their own publishing. Dick James goes out of business and they have a shot at it. And their publishing gets sold to one of the biggest gangsters in the British entertainment industry, Sir Lord Lou Grade. Mm -hmm. And he's never going to give it back. He loves money. So he owns their publishing, and McCartney never gives up the fight. Lennon dies, never getting back his early work. 
McCartney's in 1983 is recording with his pal Michael Jackson and mentions that he's finally outbid Laura Lugrade's estate because the, the guy died and he's going to get the, the rights back. And Michael finds that out and he goes and tells his lawyer just bid higher. Yep. And Michael Jackson buys him down from under him, which ended a good friendship and a relatively decent partnership musically. Had its ups and downs. Sure. Um, but then when Michael Jackson died, McCartney got in touch with the Colombian and said, hey, I owe you a record. <laughs> I'll you that record if i can buy my own music back i don't want to break i don't want to deal i'll pay you the market price just want my music mm-hmm. and they were like great cool and they made the deal and after 40 years mccartney owned the rights to his own songs again yeah God. so they and, and i forgot this part when brian epstein came to america he didn't understand how merchandising deals work yes so he made a deal for them he made with three different companies and in the end he sold off 120 percent of their merchandising rights in america so every time somebody in america bought a beatles wig or a lunch bag or anything like that the beatles had to pay them 20 cents the company oh, Jesus Christ. oh like, dear come on brian god bless the guy but geez louise and then, and then the, the, the producer, uh, uh, Walter Shenson, who did Hard Day's Night, mm-hmm. I saw an interview with him on public television, and he said, you know, we were making rock and roll movies, and I thought this would just be another one, but they seemed a bit hotter than the average band, so I was prepared to give them a somewhat larger share. You know, usually I offered a, a band, you know, 60%, and, uh, or, and I'll take, you know, 40%. And in this case, I thought, well, they sh- they'll be worth 70%. 30% should be fine. But before I could say a word, Mr. Epstein walked into my office and he held up my hand as if to silence me. And he said, Mr. Shenson, I'm sorry, but I couldn't possibly accept less than 40 percent for the boys. I smiled and I said, well, Mr. Epstein, you drive a hard bargain, but I accept your terms. He said, thank you. My lawyers will be in touch. And he left. And I was astounded because he never asked me for perpetuity rights. Which mm. means he never said that after seven years we own the film again. You don't own it anymore. Right. So this right. was 1983, and Walter Shenson was re-releasing the movie into theaters to make a fortune at the resurgence of Beatles popularity, and he still owned the rights to it. Jeez, wow. I didn't know that. So God, they made everybody else that got near them more money than they made a themselves. A lot of money. So it was in everybody's best interest that they be the biggest band in the history of rock and roll. Now, creatively, they were able to back that up with some of the most brilliant songs in the history of rock and roll. Yeah. 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 And to kind of circle it back to, to love me do a little bit, you know, I think one of the things that, one of the things that I think puts it where I have it on my list is that I feel like it's, it's impacted by their, by being what it is, you know, because it's their first single. It's something that was written when they were 16 years old. And it's, I'm looking at it with kind of that hindsight of every other brilliant thing they do. So it's like, I don't question this one, not being one of their finest songs. You know, it's, I mean, it was written around the same time as the one after nine Oh nine. Sure. So, you know, that's, a better song, although the, if you hear an old version of the one after 909, it was in straight four, and it wasn't as cool a song mm-hmm, when it exactly. swing. So it took them a few years to figure that out. So I don't think Love Me Do is their finest work. I do think it's an original piece. I think that it, it takes the blues, the bluesy edge of their harmonies into and the, and the harmonica into pop music, which at the time wasn't very bluesy. Right. You know, at the time... Pat Boone would take a very bluesy sounding Little Richard rock and roll song and make it sound as white as possible because <laughs> you don't want to scare the white audiences. And the Beatles were trying to 
they were infatuated with that music. They truly loved it. I mean, you know, that the Motown music was something that they aped from the start. And that was part of that sound of love they do was that they were trying to sound like they had the blues influence in their music. Mm -hmm. um, and their, their respect for black artists manifested itself in who opened for them on, on their tours. And, yeah. you know, they were, they were scheduled to play a show in Jacksonville at a stadium that was segregated. And when they found out, they simply said, we won't do the show. We don't play to segregated audience. We never have, and we never will. Mm -hmm. Black music was a part of what formed them. And I think that song in its very infant way evidences that. Yeah, I can, I can see that there is, I think there's a bluesier kind of soul esque element in it. Um, that yeah, you don't get it in like the straight version of one after nine Oh nine, but like what you, if you kind of switch the two up, you can kind of see how that would work. I can see that. Or even in one that was released or at the same, around the same time, like, thank you girl. Yeah. No, you don't get the of any sort of bluesy element in that. Mm -hmm. It's very straight ahead pop song with a harmonica. Right. And whereas one's um, angles to be bluesy. I think it's actually like a really great example of like a, a sweet example of what you know, sort of sweet, innocent, romantic love was like when they wrote this, they were children, you know, they had such a narrow definition of romantic love at the time. And this sort of like places you in their mindset of where they were, you know, they weren't, you know, 20 somethings, they were what, 16? Yeah. I mean, they were just kids, like think of yourself at 16. And, you know, it's, it's just such a you know, it's it's a perfect example of probably their their worldview at the time, um, and you know, it was a reflection of the the time in which they existed, and also their age. Like the the idea of romantic love in the fifties is very different from the idea of romantic love in the sixties. So being 17 in 1957 is way different than in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Um, and not even 2020, just like 10 years later yeah. in the mid sixties, you know, so it, it, it's sort of like a little, a time capsule of the world, their world, you know, just this, like, like this the romantic innocence of the post-war world they grew up in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the, you know, even like George shifted from writing songs about romantic love in the 50s and early 60s to like writing songs about, you know, like he went from love of women to his love of God, you know, just like yes. their evolution through their career mm -hmm. of the you know, their views on love and the the subjects of their love and adoration changed over time. So I, you know, I just think it's just like a sweet little innocent baby jam. Yeah. <laughs> you go from like, love me do to, to, you know, I want you, she's so heavy. Well, you know, though the not similar stylistically, uh, musically, when you think about it with, especially with Julia's beautiful explanation, it's very similar to the innocence of a Buddy Holly song. Yeah, you know, which his songs were almost nursery rhyme in their innocence, both in melodic structure and in their lyricism. And it's thinking about it now they were huge fans, and they thought he was a big hit. And surely, writing like Buddy will probably mm -hmm. produce a hit. And it was as she, as Julia just said, it was his romantic, innocent love. Yeah. I love that. That's a beautiful explanation. One of the uh, one of the things I kind of love about the story with 
with Love Me Do is, you know, George talks about, you know, they knew it was coming on Radio Luxembourg at certain at a certain time and, you know, sitting there and like waiting by the radio to hear their song for the first time, you know, like, do you remember the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio, like that buzz you got, like that feeling of like, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard? Yeah, when I was a kid and then 1983, I had a band called The Backbeats with Fred LeBlanc and Vance DeGeneres and Steve Walters from The Normals and John Herbert. And we had a song that was on B97 radio. And I was on my way to pick up my first ex-wife from work and uh, driving my Volvo and came on the radio. And I had to crank up the radio and roll down the windows, of course, so everybody could hear my crappy little AM radio, you know, definitely <laughs> in the crappy old Volvo that uh, was blasting our song. Yeah, But it was pretty thrilling, you know. I remember reading this story about uh, McCartney bumping into a friend in Liverpool and asking if, if he had money to loan him for a ham sandwich. And his friend's like, you're number 17 on the charts. You've sold like 20,000 records. And he goes, yeah, who do you think paid for all those? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, it's sort of reminiscent of that scene in That Thing You Do when their song yeah. comes on the radio and they're like running down the street and they run into, you know, Guy's family's appliance store and turn all the radios yep. to the same station and just have a complete, utter meltdown about their song being on the radio. Yeah. Um, it's- I, really, I never got over it, to be honest. I mean, it was thrilling the first time, but really anytime I hear a song and played on the radio anywhere, you know, in the world, that's... <clears throat> It's so you can't believe it, you know, that's mm-hmm. that feel. It's like you don't know who's listening and the magic of what that meant to me as a child hearing music on the radio and knowing that mine's now part of that in some tiny way. You know, I got to be on the, I did a tour of the UK a couple of years ago set up by my friend uh, Neil Sutherland in Ireland. And he got me on the BBC Scotland and BBC in uh, Liverpool, Mersey, B- in, uh, Mersey BBC in uh, BBC in uh in uh belfast and it was uh you know it was a just i couldn't believe it you know mm-hmm. i was on the radio in the, in, the t- in the places where the beatles had been yeah yeah you know i was on the radio in merseyside you know where the beatles had been right you know, it was that was about as thrilling as it, as it could get for me until i went back a year later and recorded in liverpool and then i was thrilled beyond words right <laughs> did you when you were in liverpool did you get like real strong new orleans vibes there you know, before I ever went there, I already knew from the photos. I'd read so many books, and I'd sort of lived through their documentaries, and I was—I was just so wanted to be a Beatle. I used to dream about it, you know. And so I already knew that it was a port town, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I don't, didn't get to go there until I was in my late fifties for the first time. So I'd been to plenty of port towns, and I'd seen New Orleans similarity in port towns around the world. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't surprised by that. Um, I was in love with the idea that the records that influenced Lennon particularly, he was the sort of biggest hero for me, but the whole band, that a lot of them came out of New Orleans Mm -hmm. and that what meant something to me about that being a port town meant something to them. Mm -hmm. The real way, like the sailors would pull up on a boat at the Liverpool dock and they'd have 45s from New Orleans with Ernie Cato and Fats Domino and Larry Williams, yeah. You know, So I, I tied, I cued into all that, and I, I felt quite at home, except for when I was there in August to make a record, and it was chilly. <laughs> I was recording with two friends who were from Liverpool, Pete Riley and uh, Keith Thomas, and we go to leave the studio to take a break, you know, and uh, I say, hang on a second, it's chilly, let me get a jacket. 
And they looked at each other and they burst out laughing. <laughs> and they go, it's boiling, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Have they not been to New Orleans in August before? No, they, 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 they would melt. I mean, yeah. it, it, was, it was chilly. We sat by a fire that night. Oh, my goodness. God. And, and they said, okay, yeah, you know, it's cool enough at night for a fire. And I'm like, I'm, I'm really cold. <laughs> so can I, is there a jacket in the house I could borrow? So they wound up getting me a ski jacket that their daughter owned and, and, and like a blanket to cover up with. It was <laughs> yeah. August, man. Yeah. So yeah. they're hardy stock in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, man. I vividly remember when we went there, just like arriving, getting out of the car uh, at, our, at the hotel where we were staying and just looking around and being like, huh. I feel very at home here. Yeah. This looks like just it's just like a little um and I don't mean this in a bad way, just like a little grungy, you know, just like it's not quite yeah. as shiny as London, you know. It's, it's just like the like, air coming off the coming off the water just puts that same kind of like grime on the buildings. Like a, a patina. It's got a patina. Like <laughs> cement kind of ages the same, the roads kind of felt the same. Yeah, well, and then, and then being on Matthew Street was similar to the French Quarter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That vibe, that area, you know. And I was lucky in that uh, my friend Pete Riley, who's a really well-known songwriter in Liverpool, and he was playing a show with Henry Priestman, who's a very well-known songwriter over there, with the uh, Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, cool. And he had taken the morning off to give me the tour, and he was going to make afternoon rehearsal. And so he met me at the Lime Street Station. Mm-hmm. So I get met by a guy from Liverpool whose dad had been in a band at the same time the Beatles was. And we go straight, straight to Matthew Street, of course. And as we're walking to the Cavern Club, and I'm like laser focused on getting into the Cavern Club, he pauses and he points to this pub and he goes, want to get a pint at the Grapes? And I'm like, no, I want to get into the Cavern Club. <laughs> he looks at me quizzically and he goes, the Grapes, mate. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want to get to the Cavern Club. He goes, the Grapes is where the Beatles went before the show because the cabin club was for kids, you know. They didn't serve alcohol. They only served Cokes. And the Beatles liked to get a pint at the grapes before the show and then go and do the show, take a break, run across the street, and get another pint on the break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we went in, and the place has been modernized a bit, but there's a booth that they used to sit in, and above that booth is a picture of that them. Photo. booth, And that booth has been untouched, same wallpaper, same you know, so of course we sat there and had a pint underneath their photo, and that was amazingly magical. And then going to the cabin club, even though it's not the original, was incredible. And oh, yeah. I'm sort of browsing the tourist rack, you know, of guitars and things. And Pete was too. He doesn't get that in there very often, being from there, of course. And there was an act playing, which there always is at the cabin club. And a guy was playing acoustic solo, and he goes into this boy, and without thinking, I start singing the lower harmony. And Pete starts singing the high harmony, and we look at her and smile, and we walk over to the stage. It was just awesome, man. It was, I, I loved it. Anyway, yeah, Liverpool. Walking in Liverpool, that's where it all began. I'm following the footsteps of my heroes and my friends. Walking in Liverpool I'm singing to myself Listening to the cobblestones For stories they might tell And I'm dragging used to be along with me Cause in New Orleans Change don't come easily 
Still, I'm glad to be standing on We are. Our time there was, God, it was so great. When we, we went down to Matthew Street, I think, I don't think the cabin was, no, they were open when we got there because it was kind of early afternoon, but we didn't go in at first. Uh, we did go into the grapes and we went in the back kind of patio to have a cigarette. Oh, I love this This story. is the greatest. So we're sitting out there and there's these three women and uh, they're all sloshed, right? And they're sitting there and they're, and, they're, and they're talking and they're going on and back and forth and they start talking about Dolly Parton. And one of them goes, Jolene, Jolene, please don't take my man just because you can, you cunt. And, like, we just fucking died. Oh, we were in stitches. And, you know, I didn't want to offend them, so we were trying to, like, hide our laughter a little bit. So I'm, like, tearing up because I'm trying to, like, not laugh too hard. And I wasn't laughing at them. I thought it was just, like, the most darling, hilarious. And I was like, I wish I had just recorded that. Like, I want that to be the ringtone on my phone. Like, the accent and the just the humor and the, oh, it was so great. The Liverpool has a lot of Irish stuff. They have a lot of the Irish humor. Mm-hmm. I was in a tiny pub in Ireland, and uh, an older gentleman. Well, this is a few years ago. An older gentleman walked in, and I meant to step out of his way. It was a small entrance way. I meant to step out of his way, and there was a postcard rack behind me that I hadn't seen, and I tripped over it, and I almost fell. And the old guy grabbed me by the collar and steadied me, mm-hmm. and instantly knew that I wasn't from there, and went steady now, Yank. You don't want to come all the way to Ireland to trip and fall. <laughs> and he goes, well, where are you from, Yank? And I said, uh, I'm from New Orleans. And he broke into a big smile. And, of course, they're, all Irish guys like to be smart asses. So he goes, ah, you're from New Orleans. You must be a singer then. And I said, I said as a matter of fact, I am. And he folds his arm and he goes, well, then give us a song. <laughs> so I sang, do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? Just standing there in his pub. And as I sang, his smile got bigger and bigger. And when I finished, he smiled and he nodded and went, ah, you're class then. <laughs> That's great. I love it. <laughs> so cute. Well, oh, God, we could hem and haw about Liverpool for hours. Oh, my gosh. So, um, so at 212 for Love Me Do, do you disagree with the placement? Do you agree? Where would you have it if higher or lower for you? No, I don't think it's one of their their best. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't place it any uh, any. I wouldn't argue with your placement on that one. Although there's something about Long and Winding Road being near it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the segue is there, so Ooh. I will, I will, we'll dive into the deep end here because I, I know the sharks are going to start circling. So at at number two eleven, it's the Long and Winding Road. The Long and Winding Road. Disappear. I've seen that road before. It always leads me here. Lead me to your door. So January of 69, our boys are not in a great space collectively. They've just released the White Album two months prior to that, which were long and grueling sessions where a lot of drama comes to the surface. Ringo walks out. Things are just so tense and awkward. Everyone's in their own studio working on their own songs. So they put the record out and they take really no time off 
between the records to deal with their own personal lives. And there's a lot of things happening in 68. Uh, you know, John's spiraling into heroin addiction. He doesn't have a ton of songs banked. You know, they've got new relationships. He and Paul are drifting apart. George is over in America with Dylan and the band being told, you know, how great he is. And he's finally getting that validation. Then he comes back and he's getting his two songs per record and being told what to play. You know, so things are really uncomfortable. And they're trying to make a record on a cold soundstage at 9 a.m. in January. And, you know, it's just not really a creative space to be in. Paul writes this song in Scotland in 1968, and it's really, you know, he said as much, it's a response to the cracks forming in the surface of their relationship. One thing he said was that it reminded him of the hills of Scotland, mm -hmm. the long and winding road that leads to his own door. Yeah. Uh, and, but also the fact that he could write such a beautiful love song about the crack in, in their relationship, mm -hmm. uh, I thought said, a beautiful statement on how much he still loved them. You know, I, I think there's there's so much there's so much love that's still there, but no one had the ability to talk to each other at that point. They couldn't be open and honest and really just get their shit on the table. I don't know if you've been following this very much. Um, that what you just said is the version of Let It Be that we all know from the film mm -hmm. and from Lennon's very angry interviews after it was all over. Uh, Peter Jackson was given 700 hours of footage. Right. The guy who did Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Rings. And, <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Very that's, different book. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how much I know about Peter Jackson. But I know that he's a big director and he was given the 700 hours of film. And Ringo has only seen the rooftop performance, which we only got to see a few songs in the original film. It was quite a bit longer. Mm -hmm. But he also got to see the raw foot. The rooftop performance blew him away. He said it made him cry, just watched him rock again. But the footage that Peter Jackson was sending him on computer to look at, the thing that pleased Ringo most was that it was them laughing and creating together and making music together and enjoying it. It wasn't always just some cold stage in Twickenham. That was a bad idea by the film's director. Mm -hmm. Because as George said in, in, later on in the anthology film, you know, they had us up at Twickenham at 10 in the morning, and who can make music at 10? Well, I can. But if you're brutal, you can't. You're used to sleeping and coming in around 1 o'clock in the, in the afternoon after you've had your lunch and tea so that you can stay up all night doing drugs and making music. Mm -hmm. and, it's a wonderful way to spend a life. Sure. I, you know, I admire them for it. I didn't do it, but you know, but I think that there's a joyful side to that album. Yeah, that we didn't get to see, and a joyful side of that love at that time that we didn't get to see. Yes, they were they had grown weary of each other. They were 28 year old men who had chosen other loves. Each of them were married by then. You know. I chose my second ex-wife over the lead singer of Cowboy Mouth. Mm -hmm. and that fractured the band in a way that I wasn't aware of until she split on me. And I went, oh, I chose to love her more than them. And that messed up the band some. Mm -hmm. I take responsibility for that. But that's what happened. They loved other people more than they loved each other for the first time. And they'd been in each other's back pocket since they were 15 at this point. And, you know, you just grow and you develop new friends and new interests and, you know, I think well, part of a record company's thing is to tell you how great you are, because if they can get one of you, it's easier than dealing with four of you. You know, and, and I think that's the thing is there's there's all these under the surface tensions that no one really has the facilities to talk about, especially, you know, I think 
for for men, it's hard to be open about those kind of feelings when they're cross feelings towards each other. It's hard to have that moment of openness, especially back in, you know, in the 60s, I think that where it's a bit more frowned on, you know, therapy is there's a thing that, you know, you, oh, my God, you don't go to therapy. Oh Plus, they, they loved each other as boys in an innocent way. Mm-hmm. And they became men together over business. That is a very hard business. Yeah. And and you get your head gets twisted. You know, people start telling you you're the one. Mm hmm. You know, and then you start thinking, well, I'm the one. And why don't these guys act like I'm the fucking one, you know? And so they were 28-year-old kids. And at 28, you don't think of yourself as a kid. You think you're a man. Yeah. You're ready to prove it to the world. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of ready. I mean, their split, to me, it remains part of what makes them so perfect. Because longevity has never been my own personal measuring stick for greatness, <laughs> you know, right. greatness is greatness, whether you got to do it once or whether you got to do it for a lifetime. And they did it for a period of eight years that in my opinion is unparalleled in record one to the final record in love me do to long and winding road. The maturity as songwriters and arrangers is astounding. It really is. You know, even, and even if you, you know, I know Paul has a lot of issues with the Phil Spector version of the song, you know, covered in strings and choirs and all that. But I think part of that is like, for one thing, Paul's a control freak. Yeah. You know, I think you've read the Jeff Emmerich book mm-hmm. where the band would work from, you know, six o'clock in the evening until, you know, one in the morning. And they would get tired and go home. And then Paul would stay from one in the morning until six in the morning working on a single bass line. Yeah. And that's an obsessiveness that makes him the genius he is. Right. So I think that it strayed from his vision in that it gave more credence to the argument that was made post Beatles that Paul wrote the sugary ballads while John wrote the real rockers. When in fact, they both wrote beautiful ballads and they both wrote rockers. Yeah. And in that particular one, Paul took the chance of being overtly sentimental about his friendship. Mm-hmm. And if it was released the way he intended it to be, with just John on bass and George on guitar and Paul on piano and Billy Preston on electric piano and Ringo on minimal drums, it would have been very intimate. It would have been the conversation he was trying to have with his bandmates. Yeah. Instead, it was a big schmaltzy love song. Right. That God bless it got covered by Ray Charles and, and tons of people covered the song. Right. And, and he even said, you know, I wrote it for Ray Charles, like with Ray Charles in mind on that delivery. You know, that's kind of the way he saw it was as a Ray Charles thing. And I think you can really you hear it, especially in like in the Let It Be Naked version where it's just the band. You know, it feels more organic and it feels more real. And I, I think having had the real syrupy schmaltzy version, it the strings, the specter aspect of it is a disservice, I think, to the real beauty of that song that makes it kind of like it. It's too on the nose. It's too syrupy and too schmaltzy. Takes Billy Pretz, Preston's very understated piano part and turns it into a giant orchestral vocal part mm-hmm. that becomes over the top schmaltzy. Yeah. And, 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 but when you hear it on Naked and you hear it's, oh wow, that movement, that orchestral movement, it's really just Billy Preston very lightly going, da 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 It's really gentle and lovely. 
Yeah, it, the subtlety makes it seem so much more nuanced, like a conversation would be, as opposed to just like this slap in the face of like, look how fucking sad Paul is. <laughs> as I said, I, we were talking before the show started, but we were talking about the fact that Billy Preston, for a moment, brought them back to being a band again. Because mm -hmm. as they all admitted later, there was a new person in the room and everybody had to behave. They yeah. couldn't be busy with each other. They had to be nice <laughs> and easy. And he was gospel, and they all loved gospel music. They all loved, as we spoke of earlier, the, the Motown music, that kind of music. And so when Billy Preston brought to them with a gospel edge, and then the opening chord, the F chord that Paul hits after the... He's hitting not just a, a traditional F chord, but he's hitting a G on the lower hand, a G and a D, which is a gospel thing, as my piano teacher Bill Malchow taught me. Mm -hmm. Gives that chord a fullness yeah. and a bluesiness again that it wouldn't have as just a straight F chord going. See, that's a lot duller than. Yeah, you know, it so, really lifts it up, you know, and, and it's one and of those tricks that they're so Preston, good at. Like, I wonder if he was hitting the chord and Billy Preston went, "Hey man, if you do this, so that yeah, throw a G into it, yeah, yeah." You know, and, and you know, it's funny because we talked about this in a previous episode, um, like. Even as far back as P.S. I Love You, where they're throwing in uh, G sharp seven, I think. You know, just, you know, instead of the chord that you expect it to be, they're really good at kind of finding these little nuances that they've picked up from jazz and blues and, you know, Tin Pan Alley stuff. That's not just your basic, you know, four chord pop songs that make those things so much bigger and so much more, you know, tuneful and so much more memorable. Yeah, yeah. I know you wholeheartedly disagree that this song is where it is. Why do you have it? Why would you have it much higher? For all the reasons we just discussed. For one thing, it can be taken as a love song, mm -hmm. but it can be taken as a plea to his old bandmates as they're falling apart. It can be taken as an intimate conversation with a friend. I think that it's a gorgeous melody. It's an, you know, once you've heard it, you're going to sing it. I think it's an elegant piano piece. I think. It shows the musical maturity every bit as much as a song like Let It Be in a gentler way. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I put it at much higher scale just because I, I love the song. You know, I, I think it's, it's beautiful, especially I had problems with it when I was younger because of the Phil Spector orchestrations. But especially after I heard Naked, I, really, I got the song for the first time and really opened to it and was like, ah. That's what he meant. That's I get it now. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I think, you know, one of my other kind of, I won't call it a gripe, but I think one of the things that handicaps it for me is because it's so sad and it's, it and because it's the last single and things are so dark at that point for them, like it makes me sad to think about it as like, God, this is the end of it, you know, like, and John and George aren't even on this record, you know, cause Spectre takes them out and, you know, it's almost kind of a bummer to listen to because it's so on the nose sad. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's it's almost like um, and when I was doing a bit of research about this, um, I was sort of reading about the album as a whole and 
I believe there were three different track listings, uh, attempts at track listings. Yeah, that uh, Glenn Johns was trying to do a, tra- uh, a run a track listing for. Right. Him. So on the second version of the track listings that obviously were not the final, um, right after Long and Winding Road was uh, I Me Mine, George Harrison's I Me Mine. And I was, it, I was kind of like, I found the juxtaposition of those two songs together to be very interesting. Um, I was kind of wondering, you know, George does go into a bit about I Me Mine and sort of his spirituality of it and, you know, the the universal I. And he sort of puts that spin on that song of where he is in his life. But also the lyric, um, all I can hear, uh, I Me Mine, even those tears, I Me Mine. I kind of feel like he's kind of coming at Paul, like, oh, okay, you have, like, your sad guy song, whatever. Like, you're also being, like, a real dick here, (laughs) you know? Like, save it. I don't want to hear it. Like, all I hear is you and John just I me mine, you know? Like, I I kind of get that feeling from him of just, like, shush. Yeah, I think that that he was was angry as much as he was spiritual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I think that later on they both realized that they had been you know, uh, hard on him. As Lennon said, we should have been kinder. As McCartney said, we could have been kinder, but we were Lennon and McCartney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And both, both statements were true. I mean, George is a, is a wonderful songwriter, was a wonderful songwriter. He happened to be in a band with two of the greatest songwriters of our generation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it might not have been fair that he only got his two songs a record, but it would have been hard to bump the average Lennon and McCartney song for the average, you know, Harrison song. Now, towards the end, yeah, there were songs of Lennon and McCartney's that made it when George had some really great songs that later on made it on to, uh, you know, All Things Must Pass. Mm-hmm. Um, by then, they were pretty fractured, and I don't know that George was offering them as much either. Yeah. Well, I, you know, once you get to, you know, once you know, once you start getting things like For You, Blue, and old brown shoe, he's not putting up his A game because he knows that they're they're not taking the time on him. So he's going to give him his scraps and just save his own shit for his own record because he knows that's coming eventually. He's got to know. Although he gave him two of his best songs with something in uh, "Here Comes the Sun" on the last record. You know, and what's interesting is when they do tackle those records, John's not there. Like that's early on in Abbey Road where John's still out of commission from his car accident. So it's just the three of them. And I think both of those songs are pretty much done. No, I'm sorry. John's with him on something. Uh, and he's playing That's piano, bad. and George wipes the piano from it for the most part, except for in the bridge. Really? Yeah. And what's interesting is there's floating around, and it's 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 at the end of the master take of something. You know, once it hits that, dun, 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 bum, 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 you get about maybe 10 seconds where they hold the note, and then John goes into this little piano jam, that's the riff for um for the song uh, Remember uh, off Plastic Ono Band. And the band jams on that for like four minutes in kind of this slow version. And they cut that off of the master track of, wow. uh, of something.
So you disagree with me on 212, but I think you've got some good points on it. You know, I think some of the things you've said have, have given me some, some, some fat to chew on for Long and Winding Road. Yeah, you know, you sound like a young man when you talk about Long and Winding Road. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Paul, before I let you go, do you have some time for some rapid fire questions? Absolutely. All right, cool. Just off the top of your head, here we go. Favorite Beatles song? Favorite Beatles song? Your eyes got real wide. <laughs> I feel like my favorite child uh, in my life. Okay, I love it. I love it. Least favorite Beatles song? Um, what well, Pain Mary Jane uh, at the party. What's the name uh, of that What's one? the new Mary Jane? <laughs> the new Mary Jane. You're going to be so mad. I haven't even gotten to that song yet on this list. I love I know. that song. I saw that in the Facebook post. That's when I stopped reading. I was like, I was like the kid has gone mad with power. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, favorite Beatles album? Um, it's a t- toss-up between Revolver and uh, Abbey Road. Okay. Uh, least favorite album? Um, the, uh, Yellow Submarine American version, because mm-hmm. it's just mostly orchestrations right. to rip really any American version. You know, I know you know this, but the American versions, the Beatles thought it was cheating the fans to put singles on albums. Yeah. They wanted to give them something special. So the Beatles put 14 different songs in the singles on each record. The American labels use that as an excuse to hold off three songs per record and to save up the singles until they had 11 songs and could release a whole other album. The Beatles didn't know anything about that wasn't sequenced with any kind of artistic sensibility. I stopped buying the American records when I was like 10. Yeah. I was outraged at 10 years old. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, my favorite question of the show, your favorite memory associated with a Beatles song. I'll tell you the one that pops to mind. Mm-hmm. It was after Katrina and uh, John Boutte, a great jazz singer and a dear friend of mine. And we were talking long distance. He was living in Asheville, North Carolina at the time. And he goes, Paul, CBS Records called. They want me to sing on a record they make him with Ivan Neville and George Porter's going to be called New Orleans Social Club. I said, that's great, John. It's a great break. And he goes, yeah, they told me they want me to sing this song, Blackbird. And I said, well, I know that song, Pack Up All Your Cares and Woes. And they go, no, no, we don't want you to sing that song. We want you to sing Blackbird by the Beatles. So I said, okay, I don't know that. I'll go looking for it. He goes, now, I'm living in Asheville, North Carolina. I go to the record store, and I said, I'd like Blackbird by the Beatles. And the guy goes, yeah, that's on the White Album. He goes, Paul, the motherfucking White Album. <laughs> He does one of the most beautiful versions of Blackbird I've ever heard. Fantastic. That's great. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, that is, I think, the second or third post-Katrina favorite Beatles story we've had on the show so far. Mm. In just the maybe 10 episodes we've taped. <laughs> mm. I feel like there's a, a theme with New Orleans musicians and Beatles music post-Katrina. Yeah. You know? I think it was a definitely a time of rebuilding and generationally for me, it was reaching back to childhood. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was being a kid again, starting over. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you have going on these days, man? I know late last year you released your most recent album, 
I'm a song, I'm a story, I'm a ghost, and you did the Wright Brothers album. What else is going on for you? Uh, I was about to record uh, some songs that I've written, been writing with my friend John Rankin for about 14 years. And we're both getting a little bit long in the tooth. We thought it'd be good to kind of capture them, just the two of us acoustic with Mark Bingham, and then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. And so we had, didn't even see each other for four months. And we recently started sitting six feet apart on his front porch to start. We said practicing, but mostly we talk and reminisce and strum a little bit. And so I'm not really working on anything. I, John and I just uh, sold for the Canal Street to a documentary film, uh, you know, sold the publishing rights for it. And I've been making money like that with songs and movies and stuff. And um really mostly been staying home and gardening and learning to play piano which is something i always wanted to do and my wife allison bought me one fantastic i love it where uh where can everybody hear your music at where can they pick up paul sanchez tunes i i sell my physical stuff strictly through louisiana music factory they have albums and cds and uh, I'm available on all the places on the internet where you find music, you know, CD Baby and Spotify and wherever it is, you know, I'm there. I love I'm it. Omnipresent. <laughs> He's here, uh, there, and everywhere. But then so are a million other people. Right. <laughs> competition now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to put out Jet Black and Jealous on vinyl. Oh, nice. Lovely. When is that coming yeah, out? It's, uh, uh, my wife's son gave us a record player. Adam gave us a record player two Christmases ago. And uh, I just love it again, man. Yeah. There's nothing like vinyl. Like the whole experience of it is part of the community thing. It's just like what I miss about real live performances. I also missed about vinyl. Like putting on Alexa and saying, play Beatles and letting it play. Music has almost become wallpaper for people. It's something in the background as they do other things yep. because it's become that easy to access it. But the, the act of picking out a record with someone, agreeing on it, putting it on side one, mm-hmm. and you're doing something, but you're very much listening to the music because side one ends. And then before you flip side one over with the record still in your hand, you talk about side one mm-hmm. with the person you're sitting with. And wasn't this song and that song? And then you flip it over. And you get back to your comfortable places and listen to side two. And it's a very interactive thing. You're physically interacting with the record, with each other, with, you know, you're taking time to enjoy the experience. So I really dig it. That's beautiful. I'm really pleased to get the last two out on vinyl, so much so that I'm going to put out uh, uh, Jet Black and Jealous and a couple more on vinyl before I'm done. Nice. We have to pick those up. We are, we are big vinyl people in the Predis household. Mm-hmm. And I actually, you know... He's, Jonathan has always collected records as, as long as we've been together. He's always been super into vinyl. I wasn't into it for a long time, but then I just sort of learned to love it. And now whenever we travel, you remember traveling? What that was like? Um, <laughs> whenever we would travel, we would find the best record stores wherever we were going. We would do our research ahead of time and uh, make sure that we would visit places. Obviously, we did a ton of that when we were in England. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it's it's so nice to just, like, go our separate ways in the record store, meet up an hour later with our finds, and veto yeah. each other's picks if we have to pare it down if we're on a budget. When uh, <laughs> when we were in Liverpool, we went to a shop. Uh, we found it on somewhere on the Internet. So we went in. It was called Defend Vinyl. And we went in, and we're looking around, going through the racks. And we're, Julia, point, you know, comes and taps my shoulder points behind the counter you know the store um 
Are you know Defend New Orleans, the T-shirt company here? Yeah. And they've got a graphic that is like Louis Armstrong behind, like his head in front of two crossed trumpets. And um, what do they call it? The Jolly jo- Louis. The Jolly Louis, yeah. And behind the counter, they've got a flag with that graphic. And Julia goes to the shopkeeper, is that from Defend New Orleans? And he goes, yeah, it is. She goes, well, we're from New Orleans. And he goes, I named the shop after that store, Def- Defend New Orleans. That's, this is Defend Vinyl. So we had a great, a great chat with the shop owner. And then earlier in the week, she follows somebody on Twitter. No, someone just randomly followed oh, me. This they followed her me. on Twitter. Yeah. They're from Liverpool. So they start talking. This woman knows the shopkeeper. And he told her because she's a big New Orleans person. Two years ago, oh, we had a couple in from New Orleans. They knew the flag. So what a weird, like, small little world it is, you yeah. know? Yeah, that it is. Yeah. That it is. And we're definitely going back to that shop when we're allowed to travel again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when is uh, when is Jet Black and Jealous coming out? Uh, probably in the fall. In the fall? Okay. It's, yeah, I just sent it to uh, uh, to the factory, and it takes a while for vinyl, as you know. Yeah. Well, Paul, this has been a blast, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you do it again with us as we get further down the list. Oh, I'll do it anytime. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll again by a song selection I'm, reach out. I'm sure. I ho- hopefully when we do it again, we can do it in person. Uh, that would be nice. That'd be nice. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, Fingers take care, crossed. my friend. Yeah, give our best to Allison. We'll talk to you soon. It's great to see y'all, and it's great to see y'all doing something together. Thanks, yeah, man. It's, it's a pleasure. We're having a good time with we it. We are having a good yeah. time. Yeah. I can tell. <laughs> Thanks, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon, all right, dude? Be well, brother. Thanks, Bye, man. Adios. Paul Sanchez, everybody. How about that? So great. I love it. It's always fun to talk to him. The dude is a phenomenal writer. If you're not familiar with his tunes, I highly, highly recommend you check him out. Jet Black and Jealous, the one he's putting out in a few months, I think is one of his first solo albums, and it's really a great record. Um, and that, that song, Jet Black and Jealous, uh, was covered a few years ago by the Eli Young Band, who are a popular country band. Yeah, if you're into... The country tunes. And, you know, you can kind of get a, a look into his music just by his stories that he told today. Yeah. And those carry over into his songs very well. He's such a great storyteller in music and in conversation. Yeah. So great. I love it. Well, this has been a whole lot of fun, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. If you've enjoyed it, I hope you will leave us a comment on our Facebook page. Uh, let me know if you agree or disagree. Two very popular songs I have very high up in my list. So I'm sure there'll be some thoughts on that. Um, but also check us out on Instagram. Uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast. Yes. Leave us a five star review if you would, please. Oh, Tell I a friend. Say subscribe on your favorite podcast distributor. Sure. The word. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Go with it. <laughs> the place you listen to podcasts. We'll get better at this as time goes on, I promise. One day, yeah. Well, have a great week, everybody. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Until then, I am Jonathan. I'm Julia. And we'll see you next time. Adios. Bye, y'all.